Um, I have to say that this was a very difficult passage, at least for me. But then as I um, <clears throat> read a, a commentary or two, discovered it was pretty difficult for them. So I, I was uh, uh, at least encouraged in that regard. Let me begin reading verse one. We're gonna uh, we're gonna finish up through verse eight tonight. But I'm gonna begin. I'm gonna read the whole paragraph. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then, how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. Um, <clears throat> if I, uh, when I read that, you were confused, good, maybe we can just, you know, eliminate a little bit of our confusion as we look at it more closely. We looked at verses 1 and 2 last week. Um, you may recall that I suggested that what Paul is doing is handling uh, objections that he thinks would ri arise in the minds of his audience. And uh, the, the first one is that he is, um, um, he's thinking that his Jewish audience is, is thinking, okay, then Paul, you just told us that we're going to be judged just like a Gentile, then, then, it, then what profit is it all that we were a, a Jew? And then he says, he answers in verse 2, that the advantage is that uh, to you was entrusted, committed, the oracles of God. And we looked at that last week, and, and I, my emphasis, uh, or at least I sought to make my emphasis um, by saying that uh, nothing could be more privileged than to have God speak to you. And then uh, the converse, nothing could be more, um, uh, more of a judgment than to have God stop speaking to you. But then he moves on in verse, uh, in, in verse 3 to address... Uh, another difficulty. He is he has introduced another, and, and one of the things that you have to do here is uh, this is almost a dialogue that's going on. It's not uh, Paul dialoguing with another person, but really he's dialoguing with another imaginary uh, objector. He is he is he's discoursing with someone who's not there, but he's thinking this is what they're thinking, and I hope that uh, will help you as we go through this because part of this is Paul saying, this is what you're saying, and then he comes back and he answers it. And that's I, what I think makes it so difficult to, uh, to interpret. Uh, so the, the next um, difficulty that he thinks his audience has, is having is mentioned in verse 3. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Uh, in essence, the difficulty that he's trying to preclude is... Paul, um, you can say all you want to about how advantaged we were, but it really wasn't much an advantage. It really wasn't any uh, use being a Jew. We really weren't advantaged at all by having the oracles of God. 
because the oracles of God uh, did not seem to uh, benefit us uh, because of our unbelief. Yeah, 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 you say we had the, the, the oracles of God, but our unbelief rendered them of, of really uh, no value. Our lack of faith has negated the, um, the whole value of having the thing in the first place. Um, uh, all of those promises, all of those provisions were of no value because our unbelief um, rendered them of no value. That's, that's what he's suggesting in verse 3. For what if some did not believe? Well, their unbelief make the, uh, the faithfulness of God without effect. He's thinking that his audience is thinking that. And that's the, verse, that's the thrust of verse 3. Then he comes to verse 4 to answer that which is expressed in verse 3. Are you still with me? Anybody sleeping yet? Um, and, and he answers, certainly not. I, I love the little, uh, this, in fact, some of your translations may, may say something like, God forbid, uh, or, um, but actually, the, the, the Greek particle is, is, is the strongest form of negation available to the author. It is meganoito. May it never be. That is, um, what he thinks his audience is asking or suggesting is, has the unbelief of Israel done away with all of the value and benefit of having the oracles of God? Paul's answer is, no way. Meganoit. He says that again, by the way, later on in the text. Same Greek um, phraseology. Now, um, the, the he's going to answer this in verse 4. The failure of the Jews does not and cannot in any way affect the purposes of God or the faithfulness of God. And that is his, basically his reply. Their unbelief in no way thwarts what God is up to. That is a principle here, guys, and you, you, you really need to get a hold of the principle. Um, the principle is that the certainty of God's promises and the, the, the value of his provisions do not in any way and cannot in any way depend upon the faithfulness of God or the faithfulness of men or the response of men to, to receive them. What God has purposed, God will most certainly bring to pass. Now, let me give you, hopefully, an example. Take the church of Jesus, the Christian church. If this were an institution that um, succeeded only because men had responded rightly, the Christian church would have ceased to exist centuries ago. The Christian church does not continue to uh, exist because man has responded so wonderfully. No, ladies and gentlemen, the principle is God's promises, God's provisions do not depend upon the response of men. The faithfulness of God is seen in his provisions whether we take advantage of them or not. Now, um, and then he adds this quotation very strangely at the bottom of verse 4. Uh, it's a quotation out of Psalm 51, uh, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. 
Um, this is drawn from Psalm 51. And you know what Psalm 51 is, don't you? That's Paul's great penitential psalm. Uh, after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, his, uh, the expression of, re of his repentance is found in Psalm 51. And there is, there is a point in that, in that psalm that is quoted right here. It, it, it is, it's almost as if David is saying that there was a moment when, when I, I was thinking that you were wrong in dealing with me in the way that you were dealing with me. But now, I know that you have dealt with me in a perfectly right and just way. Gang, in, in this little difficulty here, it's almost as if God is on trial. And David says, when all the facts are in, I, that, I think that's the, the thrust of this little quotation from Psalm 51, that is, that when all the facts are in, um, <clears throat> everyone, all of us, will have to admit that God is right and man is wrong. <laughs> um, my lack of faithful response to his promises in no way thwarts um, his carrying through on his promises. And then in verse 5, he introduces another argument, um, again, trying to preclude what is in the minds of his hearers. He says in verse 5, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? Now, guys, <laughs> verse 5 is as if that were a statement being made by his audience that is trying to overturn him. Do, do you get that? That is, Paul is saying something in verse 5 as if it were coming from his audience who objected to what he was saying. It's like this. Okay, Paul. Um, you said that we Jews are going to be included in this, this, uh, this uh, all-inclusive judgment, right? Well, what, is the, what advantage is there in being a Jew? <laughs> well, Paul says, well, it's the advantage is that you've got the oracles of God. And they say, well, <laughs> but uh, Paul, you don't seem to understand because, uh, you know, it really wasn't much of an advantage because, uh, because of unbelief. Those, those advantages really weren't an advantage. And Paul says, oh, wait a minute, wait just a second. No, you, you, uh, you misunderstand it. Uh, uh, just because you are in unbelief, it's not going to anyway, in any way thwart the provisions and the promises of God. And then they say, okay, Paul, <laughs> I, uh, I think I understand what you're saying. What you're saying is that God's um, faithfulness and his uh, provisions are going to remain constant no matter what we do in unbelief. Is that right? Well, yes, that's, that's, that's what I'm saying, is that your unbelief is in no way going to thwart the purposes and the plans of God. Well, all right then, Paul, how about this? If our unrighteousness uh, does nothing but, in essence, demonstrate the righteousness of God, um, then tell me this, Paul. How could God possibly judge us? If all we did in our unbelief was provide a backdrop for his righteousness to be in a, in a more full way demonstrated, then Paul, he shouldn't be judging us. 
that's what's the content of verse 5. <laughs> Are you with me? And then he replies to that in verse 6. Oh, by the way, let me go back to just to verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? And then notice in that parenthesis, he pauses to look at us and says, I speak as a man. It's almost as if he can't bring himself to, to maintain a straight face as he says it. He wants you to know, this is the most unthinkable thing that anybody could possibly... I just want you to know, yeah, that's the way they think. I'm sorry it's the way they... But that's the way they think. I speak as a man. Um, it's, a, it's a horrible thing that people are, are, are uh, thinking like that. But they think like that. <laughs> um, but anyway... Uh, then he replies to the objection that he raises, and he raises it because he thinks it's in the mind of his hearers. He addresses that in verse 6. Certainly not. Um, how, um, for then how will God judge the world? Now guys, again, it is an answer to the objection of verse 5. The objection of verse 5 is, how can God punish a people who were, in essence, magnifying his righteousness? That doesn't seem fair. Um, and, by the way, it's a very modern argument, an argument that can, it exists today. Uh, how can God punish people when what you're saying is that my sin just allowed the great grace and mercy and righteousness of God to be displayed more brilliantly? And he replies in verse 6. And he says to them, which I think is the most, the, the, the greatest stroke of genius in the text. He says to them that, um, that in your argument, and he's saying this in verse 6, in your argument you have gone too far and you have proved too much. Are you with me? <laughs> Gang, Jews believed in a judgment and they believed in a judgment that would include Gentiles. He says in verse 6, uh, for then how will God judge the world? What he's saying to his detractors are, if you guys are right, and God is not fair to judge, then he can't judge anybody. You see, you're calling into question the fairness of his judgment, but you believe that there is a judgment. You believe that those Gentiles are going to be judged. So in your argument of verse 5, you've, proved, you've gone way too far. And you've proved too much. Because what you're saying, if you're right by that logic, how will he judge anybody? How will he judge the world? Uh, and that's, <laughs> I think that's a genius, a, a, a stroke of genius on the part of Paul. And then in verse 7, it gets a little bit even more confusing. <laughs> For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? Again, the only thing I can suggest here is that what Paul has done is given you another particle of the argument of verse 5. That is, this is another subset of the, of the argument of verse 5. Uh, because it's saying the same thing only through um, a different language. If the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory... Why am I still judged as a sinner? That's the same thing of verse 5. It's just the specific use of the idea of truth and lies. Okay, if you're saying, Paul, that my lying um, 
has made it manifest has made God's truth more manifest then basically God my lie has made it possible for people to see God's truth better so why does he judge me same argument that you found uh, in verse 5 and Paul really doesn't even address that one to speak of but he does go on to add something slightly modified in verse 8 um, and why not say let us do evil that good may come as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say their condemnation is just okay in, in verse 8 he's putting it in a slightly different way but he is still talking to this imaginary questioner of his and he says wait a minute you guys need to go a step further um, why stop at any one sin why stop at any the, the, the sin of lying why not why don't we just say let's just sin it up why don't we just go out and sin to it uh, let's have a gut full of this sin um, and why not say let us do evil that good may come forget just the lying heck why don't we just say let's let's sin in all ways so that good may come and his only reply to that is these people are going to be condemned and they deserve it their condemnation is just now guys um, I'm not sure that was greatly profitable but I do think that is consistent I do think that's what the argument is in those eight verses what I'd like to do as we close um, is, is to drive up three lessons, three quick lessons, um, and then we'll, we'll head home for the night and come back to get something that is, is a little bit more understandable next week. But um, first of all, if you will permit me just kind of a, a personal note. Um, in, in, a, in a strange, twisted, perverted way, this is really a comforting text for me. <laughs> And, and on, very honestly, it should be a comforting text for any preacher, any teacher. Because, um, and, and here's why. This is kind of self-serving, so just kind of bear with me. Um, uh, and verse 8. And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say. Now, nothing could be more comforting to a preacher than a statement like that for this reason <clears throat> the Apostle Paul in the preaching in his preaching and in teaching ministry was slandered and not only slandered he was grossly misunderstood I'll tell you a quick story every time I say something like that it reminds me of a story that took place back in Ocala years ago and I was preaching from Exodus 19 if you can find Exodus 19 real quick Exodus 19 Exodus 19 is the chapter before Exodus 20. <laughs> and Exodus 20 <coughs> happens to be the Ten Commandments. And, um, um, and Exodus 19 is the day that uh, God comes to Moses and tells him how to prepare the people to receive the law. And uh, look at verse uh, 18 of 19. 1918. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended in it uh, upon it in fire its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly when the blast of the trumpet etc etc and um, I, I never forget that my title of the sermon that night was smoke on the on that day was smoke on the mountain 
That was my title on the Sunday morning, Smoke on the Mountain. And I went on to preach my little heart out, telling people um, that the God that you see consuming Mount Sinai and telling Israel, don't get close to it because if you touch the mountain, you're going to pay for it with your life. The God who delivers the Ten Commandments in thunder and smoke is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God that we serve today. The God who has, um, uh, who said he loved the world so that he gave his only begotten son. It's the same God. Well, we had Sunday night church back then. You know, back when, when Sunday night church was voguish. It's no longer voguish. So we don't have it anymore. Um, but in our Sunday night service, <coughs> there was several things that we did. And one of the things was we had a, you know, a hymn fest. And, um, you know, people could, I want to sing hymn number 277, you know. And um, if I sang It Only Takes a Spark once, I must have sung it 50,000 times. Because it was always some little girl, mm, I'm going to sing It Only Takes a Spark. It only takes a spark. That's all. And I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, you've got another example tonight of why I love Jimmy Umlauf's leadership. I don't care whether you agreed with it or not. What that is, his little alteration of the hymn. He's, he's trying to think these things through to make them biblically consistent. Isn't that wonderful? That is just wonderful that, that somebody's given that much thought to it. But anyway, heck, I like it the other way. Um, <laughs> Jesus came to show us the way. What the heck? <laughs> just a joke. Anyway, so uh, we had the hymn fest. And not only we had the hymn fest, we had, um, you know, anybody want to share anything or questions and answers. And this little lady stood up. And she was a sweet lady. And she said, You know, y'all, one thing that really is a joy to me is that the God of the New Testament is not the God that we see there in Exodus 19. The exact opposite. The exact opposite of what I'd said the morning. I'd, I'd, you know, just preach my little heart out and saying, you know, the God of Exodus 19 is the God of John 3.16. And, and she wasn't being mean. She, she's, she's a very nice lady. And she just, and I just, and I thought, how did you, how in the world did you get that? Where did I go wrong? Uh, you know, guys, I got a letter in the mail today. Today. And somebody quoted something that I was supposed to have said in my sermon Sunday morning. And I didn't say it. I didn't say it. And, and, but that's what they heard me say, I guess. Or wanted me to say, or said I said, but I didn't say it. I went, I, I looked at my notes. I, I can show you the sentence that was that I said and that was twisted in what I was supposed to have said in the letter. And I thought, well, at least they did it to Paul. You know, <clears throat> here I am preaching my little heart out that this is the truth, and they're slanderously saying I said that. I didn't say that. But they did it to Paul. And, and um... It should be, in some strange, twisted, perverted sense, a comfort for anybody who teaches the Bible. <laughs> because it's, communication is, a, is indeed a tricky thing. But you see there, 
uh, how Paul is wrestling with how people understood him and what things he said. But let me let me show you just two other quick things and I'm finished. Firstly, um, I think we 21st century Christians think that we're the only ones who uh, <clears throat> is facing an audience that really desires to trip us up. And um, gang, that ain't so. Um, that is that is a that is a, not a characteristic of our culture. It is a characteristic of unbelief. Uh, unbelief is desperate to prove you wrong, and so they're going to say, oh, "Okay, okay, I see what you're saying. You're saying God is sovereign, didn't he? Didn't you say that? Yeah, I said that. You're saying that God is omnipotent. Aren't you saying that? Yeah, that's what I'm saying." Well, then tell me this there, Dr. Young. Do you think that God can make a rock so big that he can't move? <laughs> they love to do that. Okay, aren't you, saying, aren't you saying that you don't believe in evolution, Dr. Young? That's right, that's what I'm saying. And aren't you saying that the world is not 14 billion years old, Dr. Young? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying it's 14 billion years <clears> old. <throat> Then, Dr. Young, tell me this. Who did Cain marry? <laughs> they love to do that. They're desperate to do that, ladies and gentlemen. They've got to do that. You know, just to, just to pause over that evolution thing just real quick, but I, I, I think I've, it's on the tape someplace, and I'm not quoting it very well, but um, Aldous Huxley, I think it was Aldous, who said, we don't believe in evolution because it's true. We believe in evolution because we have to. And guys, they have to. Because you and what you say you believe is a combined condemnation of them. So don't think for one minute that the only people who have had to face the withering attack of the objector who's trying to trip you up with some kind of trick question. That we're the first ones that, that our culture is the first ones smart enough to do that. They've been doing it for centuries. And they did it with Paul. <clears throat> and you see him, this master logician, uh, trying to reason through with them. But very honestly, guys, when it comes to the unbeliever, I can win every argument. I'm not saying I can, I'm saying, but if I could win every argument, of logic and, and uh, rhetoric and um, evidence and proof, I would still, they would still not be converted. Because of, remember what I said on Easter, faith is impossible. Faith is a gift. <laughs> and, and, and I'm never going to get it until God opens my eyes to see it. <clears throat> and then the third piece of application, and with this we will quit. This is something, guys, um, that I hope I can explain so that you can get it, because I'm not sure I'm good enough to explain it where you can get it. <clears throat> um, we, I, I was in the New Members class um, Sunday night, and I, I do this thing in the New Members class every time. If you, if you went through the New Members class, I hope you did, um, uh, or will. I always do this in the essentials unity and the non-essentials liberty, but in all things charity. You remember that? You remember that? 
Well, and then so if, if we have liberty and non-essentials and charity and all that, we don't need to concentrate on that. What we need to concentrate on is the essentials. The essentials. Um, if, if we insist on unity in the essentials, which we do, then somebody who's out there thinking ought to say, well, for heaven's sake, tell me what the essentials are, Dr. Young. So, uh, you know, I go through that very rapidly. The first essential is the Trinity. Pretty easy. Second Trinity, second essential is um, uh, Christology. And the third essential is salvation by grace through faith alone. And so I, I spend a minute or two telling some history of the Protestant Reformation that the, that the Protestant Reformation was by no means fought over justification by faith. It was, it was not fought over... I hope you know that. Very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, it is not justification by faith that distinguishes us from Roman Catholicism. No, no, no. Uh, it is not justification by faith that separates us from heretics and cults. No. No. What separates us is justification by faith alone. Alone. Uh, I mean, everybody believes you've got to believe something before you get to heaven. But it's that, it's that one word, sola. Faith alone. That, that, that separates us. And guys... In our effort to preach that glorious doctrine, that glorious, liberating, salvific piece of truth, that salvation cannot be earned, it is not merited, it is not worked for, it is by faith alone. If that is adequately and rightly and appropriately and biblically preached, there will always be somebody in the audience saying, well, <laughs> if that's right, then we just ought to go out and sing song. Because, ladies and gentlemen, when Paul preached the gospel, that's what they said when he said it. If the gospel is preached rightly, it's a scandal. It's always been a scandal. It was always be a scandal. What? 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 What do you mean to say? To you mean to tell me that my goodness doesn't merit me anything? Ah, well, I don't, I don't buy that for a minute. Surely, surely God must take note of some of my behavior. I say, no, 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 no. It is salvation by grace through faith alone. Well, okay, Dr. Young. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying, Dr. Young. Then, <laughs> how about this? Stick this in your pipe and smoke it, Dr. Young. If you're right, then I might as well go out and sing it up some. Ladies and gentlemen, I long for them to say that about me. Because at that point, I know I am preaching the gospel correctly. Because if it happened to Paul, it ought to happen to me. That is, when he preaches the gospel, he preached it right. And his audience concluded that that, that that silliness couldn't possibly be right. We've got to make some kind of contribution to our salvation. The gospel, ladies and gentlemen, is so free. It is so good. It is so fresh. It is so glorious. It is such 
good news. Men conclude that it's too good to be true. And only after they have concluded that can we take comfort that we have preached it rightly. When it happened to Paul, I want it to happen to me. I want people to walk out of here and me preach the gospel and say, well, you know, that boy doesn't know anything, you know. Antinomianism is the word. Antinomians will always arise when the gospel is preached rightly. You shouldn't fear them. They're just confirmations that the gospel is being preached rightly. I hope that's helpful to you. Let's quit. Oh, let's, uh, those of you who need to leave, it's just the time to do it. Just while they're leaving, I just, the schedule, I hope you know the schedule. Uh, we have, let's see, um, what's the date? The 10th and then the 17th, and we're going to finish up through verse 20. And then on the 24th, I'm going to do my little eschatology thing. <laughs> so if, if you've ever wondered, I mean, if you are a great fan of uh, Left Behind series, um, bring your Left Behind books and let's, uh, let's kind of discuss them a little bit. And, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very playful. I mean, I, I, I want to be playful because I just want you to see some things. Um, very honestly, ladies and gentlemen, anybody who dogmatizes eschatology just proves they hadn't studied it enough. Because if you study it enough, you wouldn't dream. You wouldn't dream <laughs> of saying you got all the answers. But we're going to come, and I'm at least going to show you the, uh, the four um, alternatives for you. And that should be fun. I've never done that. I've never done it for a congregation. And I didn't want to do it on Sunday morning because I just think, gosh, oh gosh, these people get all hot and bothered and I don't want to do that. I just, you know, just want to show you what's available to you. I'll let you pick one. Let's, let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father, um, we do thank you for this book. It does confuse us at times. Uh, and this passage is, is no easy passage. And I pray that it's been handled uh, correctly and carefully and uh, accurately, and if it has not been handled that way, I pray that no one in this room will ever hear or remember a word that was said, that they'll leave here and their minds will go blank. But if it was handled <clears throat> in, in some way rightly, in some way that encourages your people and, and thrills them all over again with um, the way, the truth, and the life, then confirm it to all of us. Might your word be the, be the driving force in our lives. It is indeed our life, O oh God. And we are, um, we are so privileged, not because we have a, a loud, obnoxious preacher teaching it. We are privileged that we have this book to hear from heaven. We long to hear you, your voice, more. So if your voice has been rightly represented tonight, make it to be that which feeds our souls. We ask all of this, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and good night.